This is the Down East EM Podcast. Okay, hello everybody and thank you for joining us today. I am very, very, very happy to be joined by an old friend actually, Sergei Motov. For those of you who don't know Sergei, he's prolific in the world of pain and pain management in the emergency department. He's an EM attending physician for Mamani's Medical Center. He's a research director there. And again, he has a passion for sort of safe and effective pain management in the ED with a caveat there of really trying to minimize or avoid altogether opioid analgesics. You can find him on Twitter at PainFreeED. Sergey, thank you very much for being here. Jason, thank you so much for having me. And so today's conversation, it's, I would consider it really a subsection of this huge topic, this huge, huge topic of the opioid epidemic that's really going on all over the place. It's in foam, it's in the news, it's into politics now, and a lot of different, you know, the more people you ask, the more opinions and solution ideas you're going to get. And there have been proposed uh, multiple ideas to com- combat the epidemic Things from tighter prescription monitoring programs across states and across the nation as a whole, all the way through to death penalty for drug dealers. Thank you, President Trump. So, but this leaves us really with the question of where do we in the emergency department lie in this newly defined state of emergency? Now, some have tried to sort of blame us for the epidemic, um, but defendants of us sort of point toward our lower overall prescription numbers or overall pill count numbers, which are a lot lower than some of the primary care, orthopedics, etc. But critics actually talk about really how it's not the number of pills that you're prescribing, but whether you're the introducer, whether you're the gateway to narcotics. And we sometimes do do that in acute, acutely painful conditions. And in fact, when it's been looked into, it's been found that introducing patients to opioids and giving prescriptions that extend out into the five, kind of six-day realm, we are actually increasing or introducing addiction to our patients. So a lot of backstory there, but it's really one worth getting into and going through. With all of that in the background, enter ketamine. And it has come up as an opioid alternative. And with that background, we see why avoiding opioids can really be pretty important. So now, Sergey, you have a mantra. It's really a catchphrase, if you will. How does it go, and what does it mean to you? So it's interesting that you brought this up, and you're absolutely correct that it's extremely challenging for ED clinicians to provide safe and effective pain management in this slew of this enormous public health tragedy known as an opioid crisis. So when it comes to mantra, it's actually not mine. I believe my dear friend and mentor, Dr. Louis Nelson, coined this a few years ago, and it sounds as such as every effort should be made to keep opioid-naive patients opioid-naive. What it means to me is that we, clinical practitioners, should put together considerable effort to meet our attempt to control patients' pain with non-pharmacological and non-opioid analgesic first, of course, based on patient presentation, based on feasibility of it, and after that, resort to opioids either as a rescue or maybe not at all as an analgesics. I just want our listeners to understand that opioids have very important place in analgesic armamentarium of us, ED clinicians. There's certain indication that frankly opioid may not work, or there's certain indication that opioid works better than anything else. But what this phrase implies is by using safe and judicious opioid use, by 
we can maintain that risk of misuse and risk of harms associated with opioids, particularly leading to development of opioid use disorder, to absolute minimum. Opioids not necessarily be a first-line agent for routine use in the emergency department, and that's what this phrase means. We're not denying opioids. We're just approaching patients from different perspectives. Try an opioid first, and if it fails, or if it's not suitable, or if magnitude of acute pain outweigh the risks associated with opioid use, then push for an opioid analgesic. Perfect. I, I love that explanation. So I apologize. I, I put that on to you, and I appreciate you giving credit where credit's due. So the, the mantra that I know it as or that I refer to as yours is that keep opioid-naive patients opioid-naive. And I love how you, you beautifully explain that. Really, this is not that we're n- denying the benefits of opioids, that we're not denying opioids to our patients exclusively, but trying to use alternatives when possible, trying to start in a non-opioid, try to use a non-opioid armamentarium to start for our patients, where most of us, or many of us, up until this epidemic has kind of come to the forefront, it's a knee-jerk to order patients morphine when they have pain. But what you're trying to explain and what you're trying to get us to do is trying to keep that opioid naivete by using alternative analgesics. So that's a great segue into this question or the, the point of this conversation of sub-disassociative dose ketamine. Sergey, where does sub-disassociative dose ketamine fit into this mission of opioid naivete? And really, what is sub-disassociative dosing ketamine? Well, as a part of, if we truly take this model, part of this multimodal, non-pharmacological, and non-opioid analgesic armamentarium, ketamine in its sub-dissociative dose fits very well. Specifically, in a situation when, let's say, opioids are contraindicated, undesirable, or you expect that patients who may consider giving those analgesics may not be able to tolerate them very well, that's what sub-dissociative dose ketamine comes into the play. So what is ketamine? Or what is sub-dissociative dose ketamine? Triple A agent, as I like to call it, in the conventional dose that we're all accustomed to use, mostly for procedural sedation and induction prior to intubation, it provides triple A combination of amnesia, analgesia, and anesthesia. Mm-hmm. Over the past 15 years, since discovery of this NMDA complex, or receptor complex, our interest to role of ketamine for something else, particularly for pain, has been reinvigorated. And what ketamine does is not competitively block those NMDA complex, and it provides great pain relief, specifically geared toward reducing central sensitization, hyperalgesia, allodynia. These are components of this chronic, persistent pain that can be cancer and non-cancer, which is probably one of the greatest use of ketamine. It can be given as an adjunct to opioids, non-opioids, ultrasangato, regional blocks, what have you. can be given as a single agent, can be successfully employed on pre-hospital arena in the ED, can be given as a loading dose, as a push dose, as a short infusion, and as a continuous infusion. And lastly, I just wanted to reemphasize, it's very important to look at ketamine on its spectrum. It's called brain continuum that was amazingly presented by Dr. Strayer on numerous occasions. On the sub-dissociative dose, so we're talking about dose 0.1 to 0.3 milligram per kilogram, ketamine provides analgesia, and that's pretty much it. At 0.4 to 0.5 to 0.6, you can stretch. That's a recreational dose when people get a little PCP derivative, a little bit of on a 
you know, Alice Wonderland side, a little mm-hmm. trip. Let's mm-hmm. put it this way. After that, there's a partially dissociated state, which is 0.6 to 0.8. When people are getting to this separated consciousness from unconsciousness and they start floating, they have this quicksanding sensation. And anything above 0.8 to 1, that's what we do our full dissociative dose when we're trying to put patients down for either intubation or for reduction. That's in short. Beautiful. And yeah, so as you were saying, this is a medication that we're becoming, well, we we in emergency medicine have really developed a love affair with, but we're becoming more and more familiar with at its different dosing regimes. And as you said, it was introduced to us as a sedative, really, as a procedural sedation drug, and we're finding that at our lower doses, we are able to use it as a pure analgesic. And I believe that came out of um, the anesthesia literature initially, even back, you know, into the 70s and 80s. But I mean, a, a quick review of PubMed with Sergey Motov and ketamine shows that you are very well versed in the research behind using this sorry, the subdisassociative dose ketamine for pain in the emergency department. And what have you found in sort of looking at the data? What, what can we hang our hat on here as evidence that this works? The 0.1 to 0.3 milligrams per kilogram dose, it has some backing behind it. Tell us a little bit about what kind of research we've seen. Well, um, thank you so much. You're very kind for giving me so much credit, which frankly, really not as big of a deal as you pointed out, but I really appreciate it. Sure. Uh, once again, based on the serious case series and retrospective chart reviews, and then subsequently, at least good close to 20 randomized uh, blind controlled, non-controlled, placebo controlled, or active comparative controlled trials, we can safely assume and say that at sub-dissociative dosing regimen, ketamine is safe, essentially safe, because it's really, really devoid of any significant hemodynamic changes or respiratory compromise or a need for any type of intervention, even though there's no rescue to it. And it provides comparable to opioid and non-opioid analgesia, specifically for the short-term pain relief, as most studies showed. And dosing the regimen, once again, between 0.1 milligram per kilogram to 0.3, 0.3 being the probably top. And the way you can do this, you can probably use as a weight-based dose or you can do a fixed dose. 20 to 30 milligram given over 10 to 15 minutes. Several studies, our studies included, showed that rate of very unique side effects of ketamine are associated with the speed or rate of infusion. In other words, faster you push, more dissociated, more partially dissociated, and more trippy patients will become. Therefore, based on literature, I'm a big proponent of using subdissociative dose ketamine as a slow infusion over 10 to 15 minutes. Perfect. Okay. So you're you're kind of offering to our listeners kind of two approaches. One, more patient-specific where we're dosing at the 0.1 to 0.3 milligrams per kilogram or the fixed dose regime. And then to avoid some of the adverse events, which I want to get into the specifics of in a second, you're recommending doing this as a slow infusion. In my practice, typically I'm putting that in, you know, a 50, 150 mLs of saline and letting it run in which generally will give you that sort of five to 10 minute infusion time frame. Does that work for you or how do you specifically administer it? Yeah, that's exactly what we do. I use, uh, I do use 15 minutes mark and we're going to talk later on why is may not be actually the ideal, but yes, same as you do. I take appropriate either weight based or fixed dose of ketamine and I dilute it in a 50 or 100 ml of normal saline bag and I 
do a little slow infusion over 10 to 15 minutes. 15 is probably the best way to do it. And as you remember, the study we did actually showed significantly reduced rate of psychoperceptual side effects, mostly unreality, in comparison to intravenous push dose by about 40%, which is a good number. Okay, that's good to know. And then so we tiptoed on these a little bit. So the adverse events that we're going to expect and really as we get into your trial and the different trials that you've done, come to anticipate and know are coming because they are pretty persistent, you know, 60 or so percent of the time we're going to be having some of these. But what are the major side effects that we can anticipate our patients experiencing when we give them this ketamine? So in sub-dissociative dose ketamine, based on numerous trials, and data from cancer literature, anesthesia, post-operative, surgical literature, and ED literature, really doesn't show there any major adverse effect. The one that associated with the hemodynamic abnormalities towards hyperdynamic heart conditions such as uncontrolled tachycardia, hypertension, laryngospasm, the very unique set of side effects that not require any intervention, and that's not considered to be major, but it's very, very bothersome to our patient is that psychoperceptual trend of which feeling of unreality is very, very unpleasant for the patient. And this is the one, uh, probably the most common side effect that people encounter when they get subdisodose ketamine. I just want to make one comment based on my personal experience and observation and data. No matter those you choose, you will have a certain degree of patients pretty much all patients, I didn't say right, all patients, with a different degree of bothersomeness of the psychoperceptual side effect. So I'm trying to say is all patients will have one way or another. It just depends on the dose and intensity of it. So feeling reality, dizziness, a little bit of nausea, and these are the most common side effects associated with subdissociative ketamine use. Okay. And so some of those overlap certainly with our with our opioid analgesics that, analgesics that we're using. You know, morphine has a pretty high incidence of nausea and dizziness, which kind of, if you have that Venn diagram in your mind, is going to overlap with our sub-disassociative ketamine that we're giving. But the major one that you're mentioning, the one that is going to be most bothersome to patients and most unique probably to this medication, is that feeling of unreality. The not feeling like they're in their skin, their, their sensation of some type of trip. And by infusing over a period of time, we're going to decrease that number but it is something that's expected with a certain percentage of patients. Is that right? That's very correct. That's exactly what I was alluding to. Perfect. And then, so if we're considering you know, using this medication, if we have the goal in mind, which we all should, of trying to minimize or avoid opioids whenever possible, the next question is, who is the ideal patient for subdisassociative dose ketamine? And in the same sentence, we have to ask, what are the contraindications to using this medication? So when it comes to ideal patients, I don't personally believe there exist, but based on, once again, my experience and the data, and the way that ketamine actually works, this NMDA antagonism, patients suffering from chronic intractable pain, whether cancer or non-cancer, when they have this upregulation, there's this insanity of wind-up phenomenon or central sensitization, that's where ketamine finds its best. So chronic non-cancer pain, chronic cancer pain, neuropathic pain, all neuralgias, post-herpetic neuralgia, uh, bad sciatica, any neuropathic component to it would be greatly upset by use of subdissociative dose ketamine. Patients with opioid-tolerant pain, because ketamine reduces tolerance, opioid-induced hyperalgesic states, states when increasing opioid therapy leads to worsening pain, 
ketamine reduces hyperalgesia. And based on our own research, I would say pretty much any type of acute traumatic or non-traumatic painful presentation, you may still consider using ketamine when feasible. But the greater deal is patient with a chronic neuropathic component or a cancer pain when ketamine really, really shines. Now, when it comes to side effects of sub-dissociative ketamine, there isn't really that many. So the one, of course, it's allergy. I've been using ketamine for over 15 years, and I've yet to find a patient who would come and claim that he's allergic to ketamine. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying it's impossible. It's probably there. There's a data show that ketamine should not be used, even in sub-dissociative dose, for patients suffering from schizophrenia. Apparently, that little trip that ketamine in subject induces this psychoperceptual trip will culminate in acute psychosis. So that's why you may consider not giving subdissociative ketamine for patients with a case of schizophrenia. Do I go a little uneasy on you? Now, my interesting thing we have this conversation, I'm happy, is pregnancy. So my preach always been that don't give ketamine in any dose to pregnant patients, even though I know lots of uh, our colleagues and colleagues from anesthesia and such, they safely utilize ketamine for intubations and different uh, ways of using it. Reason being, there's no human data, but data on rodents show that ketamine, even given in sub-dissociative doses, induces neuroapoptosis. It destroys brain cells in rapidly developing fetuses or embryos. So the question is, do I really want to take the risk, even though there's no human studies? In addition to it, FDA has not been able to classify ketamine as any type of schedule A, B, C, D, and with the newer schedule, they just cannot assign the letter. Australian colleagues using it safely. In America, there's no really good classifications. So I don't have a really good take on it. I personally do not use ketamine in any of those pregnant patients, but there is no agreement to it. And the last, I would not recommend to use ketamine on children less than two months of age, even in sub-dissociative dose, for the reason being their upper airway and airway reflexes are underdeveloped, and even sub-dissociative dose ketamine will make them to have a learning spasm, which we're trying to avoid. Gotcha. Okay. So, yeah, that's fantastic. So, the, the general contraindications that we should be aware of would obviously, as you said, allergy to the medication is a global contraindication to using a medication, which is appreciated. But with its lack of prevalence at this point, certainly, you know, if we use it more routinely, we may start to see patients listing an allergy to ketamine in particular if they have a significant um, unreality and, and don't enjoy that experience. They may We may find that more and more. But right now, the allergy to ketamine is not something that's well described in either a, an adverse event reaction or in a true allergy. And then psychosis, certainly that would be a, a case where we would want to tread lightly on poking the bear, if you will, unmasking or disinhibiting someone with a, a psychiatric condition by causing them to have a state of unreality, I agree with that would be something that we're not looking to have in our emergency department. And then pregnancy, that's interesting that you say that in other areas of the world, they're using it without any major reservations or limitations. But right now in our current practice environment, if you practice within the U.S., probably something you should avoid and in patients less than two months of age. Now, sort of treading on to a little bit of the uh, Jerry-Cat trial, which we're going to get into in a second, I noticed that there was some avoidance in patients with lung disease, or COPD. Can you talk to that a little bit, Sergey? Yes. <clears throat> well, there is a two separate issues, and I'm having so happy to have this platform to disclose to you and to our listeners. When you conduct a research on something that has not entirely been studied, and of course there's a level of trepidations and 
conservatism on behalf of your colleagues and even people who are running the IRB. So COPD, by definition, should not be contraindications. There shouldn't, because we're using ketamine in sub-dissociative dose, and frankly, ketamine, given a partially dissociative dose, actually has a bronchodilating properties. Yeah. But for don't, I don't, ungodly reason, we were told that to be safe, we should probably consider putting patient with a severe COPD into part of the exclusion criteria for GeriCare trial particularly. Same applies to close heart injury, close eye injury. These are all being debunked and demystified. So once again, I'm going to reiterate what you said. When it comes to pain and subdissociative ketamine, it's allergy, it's probably schizophrenia, pregnancy, and children less than two months of age. Beautiful. And just for that repetition there, then the sort of ones that will be talked about but really can be debunked and put as myth are lung disease, if you're looking at trials related to uh, exclusion criteria, and intracranial and intraocular pressures being elevated. As you said, it's a great medication, actually one of the ones that I will go to. You know, I've been taught that intubating asthmatics is just different degrees of failing, but if you're going to, you use ketamine because of its bronchodilatory effect. So that's a good way to remember that that's not a true contraindication. Okay, so let's talk about the actual trial. We've been sort of going around it a little bit. It was great to get your perspective on ketamine as a whole. But you recently published the trial in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. It was titled Intravenous Disassociative Dose Ketamine Versus Morphine for Acute Geriatric Pain in the Emergency Department, a Randomized Control Trial. Tell us about the results of this trial and your conclusions from it. Certainly. Thank you so much for giving me a shout out and let us, me and my team, to talk about the trial. <clears throat> so what we did was we uh, randomized geriatric patients, elderly patients, 65 and older, presenting to the ED with a variety of acute painful conditions, abdominal pain, flank pain, back pain, and such, to receive either sub-dissociative dose ketamine at 0.3 milligram per kilogram over 15 minutes or morphine at 0.1 milligram per kilogram given over 15 minutes as well. Our primary outcome included a change in pain score or comparative change in pain score at 30 minutes, and secondary outcomes include a rate of adverse effect and need for rescue analgesia. Now, when it comes to results, both ketamine and morphine groups showed significant reduction in pain score from the baseline to 30 minutes, frankly, to 60 minutes, even up to 120. At 30 minutes mark, though, there were no difference between two groups, essentially the same change in pain score. However, at 15 minutes mark, more patients in sub-dissociative ketamine group experienced greater change in pain score by more than three, and frankly, more patients experienced complete pain relief in comparison to morphine. The eye-opening, or the one thing that I'm still flabbergasting over it, was a insanely high rate of side effects, which I did not expect. And as I mentioned earlier, based on our prior studies, I was so happy to demonstrate again that infusion over 15 minutes will do the trick and will significantly reduce rate of psychoperceptual side effects. Boy, oh boy, was I wrong. So at 15 minutes, Mark, nearly 87% of patients in sub-dissociative ketamine group experienced variety of psychoperceptual side effects versus 50% of patients in morphine group, even though it's a still high number, 50% is a high number, experiencing dizziness and nausea. At 30 minutes, 73% of patients in ketamine group experience psychoperceptual side effects. So these are the numbers. And of the side effects, 60% experienced dizziness, 50% experienced feeling of unreality, and 7% had some vivid hallucinations, which were short-lived. So the conclusion that we put together 
was that for the short-term analgesia in the ED, subdissociative dose ketamine given at 0.3 mg per kilo over 15 minutes provides similar or comparable to morphine pain relief. However, rates of psychoperceptual side effects are significantly higher in subdissociative dose ketamine in comparison to morphine. Perfect. I love that summary. And yeah, I, th I thought it was an interesting read. Um, I appreciated and I, you know, I'm sure you were more frustrated than I was as the actual author that there was such an opt-out rate at, you know, was that 36% of patients not wanting to be involved because they didn't want morphine, which kept your numbers at, you know, 30 patients per treatment arm. But the effects of ketamine, you can clearly see it working as an analgesic. And in particular, what I found interesting was its ability to act as that sort of reset button for pain, where patients will actually have a p change in pain score from the high numbers, 8, 9, 10, to 0, and stay there consistently. Now, that wasn't the trend overall. It was a relatively comparable comparison to morphine in terms of its analgesics. But I thought that was an interesting association where there were more patients that went from high score numbers to zero in the ketamine group than in the morphine group. Uh, the very interesting part that you mentioned, and clearly is one of the take-homes for me, is the adverse event rate for this drug in this geriatric patient population is just too high, in my opinion. Higher than you'd want, um, and you know you don't want to be having your your geriatricians, your geriatric patients, going for a trip. And it just seems like too many of them are doing that, whether it's nausea, whether it's vomiting, or whether it's that psychosocial perceptual defect, it was a very high incidence of that. So take home for me is that ketamine, low-dose ketamine, or sub-disassociative-dose ketamine, it's not probably the ideal panacea for geriatric pain. It's something to use sparingly, but it's, as a whole, it may be an option for specific patients in this age group. Would that be fair, Sergey? Yes, that's brilliantly executed. Thank you so much for doing this. And in addition to it, I just wanted to reemphasize that despite the fact I'm not a big proponent of start low and go slow when it comes to analgesia, but waiting all these challenges and uniqueness of geriatric populations and the uneasiness when it comes to management their pain, maybe that concept will probably be perfectly suitable when it comes to utilization of subdissociative dose ketamine. And to me, it was eye-opening in the sense that I'm preaching now that maybe we should drop the dose by half and start with 0.1 to 1.5 mg per kilo instead of 0.3. And maybe even taking further, we should extend the duration of infusion up to 30 minutes instead of 10 or 15. Beautiful. I think that's a great point. And it kind of brings me back to a question I wanted to ask you as well is, you know, we have this dose range, right? 0.1 to 0.3. That obviously is could be a three times higher dose for some patients. And what you were, I found in kind of my brief review of this is that the 0.1 dose was initially studied as, you know, when ketamine was being used as an adjunct to morphine or other opioids. And then the 0.3 dose is the standalone ketamine subdisassociative dose. You sort of spoke to it a little bit there, but how do you kind of work within that dose range for patients? Well, you're absolutely correct. And what I think is I might have gotten ahead of myself with my you know, recommendations and some of the studies. Even in reality, if you assume to it, 0.3 milligram per kilogram and 70 kilos patient, it comes to 21 milligram. It's not a really hefty dose of ketamine, but it turns out that it is. And since we have a range, 
from point one to point three, and most importantly, we can titrate. We can always titrate. It now it's in the titration. It's very important because same concept applies to an opioid analgesia. You can always titrate. You can always give a little more. Problem is when you load patient with exuberant initially high dose, and you run into this unprecedented high rate of side effects. Backpedaling is going to be nearly impossible. Mm -hmm. So what if we start with point one? and we give it over 20 to 30 minutes, should they feel better, terrific. Should they not, we can always add a point one as well and see how they do. Checks and balances. Start a little lower and go a little slower and see what's going to happen. That's beautiful. I, I love that just for medicine as a whole, really. I love the idea of guidelines for our practitioners, but room to operate within the individual patient, right? We, we are at the bedside. We know how frail or how hardy or how mentally strong this 65 year old is and how much they can talk themselves through a little bit of psycho so, uh, motor or uh, psychoperceptual uh, disturbances or not so having that dose range and allowing us to choose within that what's best i think that's going to increase our our patient satisfaction and decrease those side effects no you're absolutely correct and you know same analogy is we've always been preaching that older patients are fairly sensitive to propofol so my what if I say that maybe due to this age-related changes in pharmacodynamic physiology, drug metabolism, or maybe drug-drug interactions, what if elderly indeed have heightened sensitivity to subdisorted dose ketamine as well? And for that very reason, as you said, maybe we should consider titrating and use in within the range and maybe start from the lower spectrum and then go up as we see fit. Perfect. I love it. Um, all right, so let's kind of bring this back to um, a patient that we've treated with this medication. They've hopefully had their you know analgesic effect. Ideally, they've had their sort of if it's a chronic pain or uh, uh, nauseoceptive pain that's been going on, had their reset in terms of their ana, uh, hyper anesthetics. What are we going to do from here, though? The patient feels better; they're ready to go home. Sergey, what are you offering these patients? You know. Are you giving them a little PCP in their pocket, a little couple dippers or some angel dust to take at home? <laughs> How do we help these patients after they leave the department? I just imagine for a second, or you imagine for a second, if you can actually have an ability to prescribe PCP, a little angel <laughs> dust, and say, so, you know, just have your trip outside of my emergency department yeah, exactly. and be well. Very good question, very challenging question. But to answer it, I'm just going to bring the very simple way of looking at it. Since we've been pondering this, over and over and over again. When it comes to pain management in DD and at discharge, it, the concept of patient-specific pain syndrome targeted approach still applies. You may take the edge off. You may take a pain to the acceptable level in within DD with an agent that may not be suitable for outpatient management as of yet. So you either find alternatives, you may find a medication that may provide similar pain relief, or do completely something different, or maybe use some non-pharmacological stuff. So interestingly enough, since you brought up PCP and Angel Dust, there are two medications on the market that do have similar to ketamine analgesic effect by blocking NMDA receptor complex. It's amantadine and dextrometrophan. Hmm. However, we both know that dextrometrophan abuse is fairly prevalent among teenagers and maybe young adults, and I would not recommend anyone to use it. And head-to-head study that compare ketamine and dextrometrophan show clear inferiority of dextrometrophan when it comes to analgesia. Amantadine, similarly, does work, but not even as close as ketamine. So option is on the market. Should we even remotely consider prescribing oral ketamine? It does exist. 
but I'm going to make a very, very quick stipulation. Oral ketamine is prescribed and has been prescribed for patients with a terminal cancer pain or end of life in order to alleviate the suffering. Beyond that, I would strongly oppose, as of, as of right now at least, consideration of using oral ketamine. Because if we're talking about opioid epidemic, imagine if we start prescribing oral ketamine. We'll turn this country into a ketamine pandemic, and there is no way out. So, ketamine works in AD, great. So, send patient home with combination of non-pharmacological treatment modalities. Let's say if it's a musculoskeletal trauma, splint, ice, elevation, heat. If it's not fractured, then maybe physical therapy, massages, God knows what else. And maybe you consider a combination of non-opioid analgesics, topical systemic NSAIDs, maybe in addition to acetaminophen. And if picture fits, consider short course of an opioid analgesics with the less euphoric potential. And I believe that's how you should consider sending patients home after successful ketamine treatment in DD. Sergey, that's fantastic. Thank you for that explanation and sort of going over the detriments to transitioning from opioids to ketamine and ketamine-type agents um, for outpatient management of pain and, and outlining all of the, really the options and treatment modalities that we should consider in every patient leaving the department. So thank you for that. So bringing things to a close, let's just hit these high points one more time. I'm going to ask you a pointed question. You can give me a, a bullet point summary of a, the topic, and then we'll close off. Sound good? Terrific. All right. So first question, what types of pain are the ideal types or which patients should we be considering sub-disassociative dose ketamine in? Patients suffering from chronic intractable pain, either due to cancer or due to neuropathic pathology. Patients suffering from opioid tolerance states and opioid hyperalgesic states. Secondary patient presenting to the deal with variety of acute traumatic and non-traumatic pain syndromes. Perfect. What are our contraindications to ketamine? Allergy to ketamine, if one exists, patient with schizophrenia, pregnant patients, and children less than ten, uh, sorry, in children less than two months of age. Awesome. And then, when we use this medication, what is our ideal dosing and route of administration, including time frame? So, intravenous route is preferred, although subcutaneous may provide similar pain relief. But we're not going to talk about this right now. So, intravenous route with a starting dose at 0.1 to 0.15 milligram per kilogram, given as a slow infusion over 20 to 30 minutes. Alternatively, a fixed dose of 20 milligram diluted in 100 ml of normal saline, similarly so given as a slow infusion over 20 to 30 minutes. I like that. I liked how you said the, one, the 0.1 to 0.15. And knowing, again, as we mentioned, that you can redose, you can reevaluate, and our actual collective dose range is 0.1 to 0.3 milligrams per kilogram. Okay, so we give the medication. What should we be telling our patients are the likely adverse events or side effects? Patients should be warned, so-called pre-ketamine coaching, that will be experiencing set of unique, you use the word psychoperceptual side effect, but you can tell patients you will feel weird. You may have slightly short-lived out-of-body experience, which will try to offset by extended infusion. I'll be right next to you. I know how to help you. I'll guide you through it. And you may mention to patients that may feel lightheaded and dizzy, and they may feel nauseous. Awesome, Sergey. Thank you so much. You really are. You're a gentleman. You're a scholar. You are a wealth of knowledge on 
avoiding opioids, trying to minimize our opioids, helping the country, the world with this epidemic. And in particular, I love your expertise in ketamine. Thank you so much for joining us today. I learned a lot. I hope to have you again on the podcast soon. Jason, in my turn, thank you for inviting me. Thank you for sharing stage with me. And as you said, we are in this together. Thanks for pushing the science of emergency medicine. Thanks for delivering this for the broader audience. And I hope our colleagues and our listeners will take something from this podcast and will change, enable, improve their approach to use of ketamine in DD. Thanks for doing all this.